0: Let us now read together what we confess about the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Days 15 and 16. You can find that on page 529 and 530 of the Book of Praise. What do you confess when you say that he suffered? During all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus, by his suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Though innocent, Christ was condemned by an earthly judge, and so he freed us from the severe judgment of God. Does it have a special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? Yes, Thereby I am assured that he took upon himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testified that he had really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, Our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Why is there added he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. After the sermon, we will sing in response from hymn 43, the stances 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, every year we celebrate Good Friday. We are used to doing that. We are used to remembering the sufferings and death of our Lord Jesus Christ and have become familiar, thoroughly familiar, with all the stories concerning his death and suffering. And so, is there going to be anything new that I will be able to tell you this morning? That's always a challenge for a minister. I doubt very much that I can. You heard it all before. And that's somewhat of a problem, not for me in the first place. For as Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 1, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. But there is danger in it for all of us, for me too. As the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. For with familiarity comes automatism, taking a lot of things for granted. For example, when you drive the same route to work every day, you hardly know anymore how exactly you got to your destination. If someone were to ask you exactly what roads you take and where you turn exactly, and the names of the streets you drive on, you likely wouldn't be able to give him all those details. The route is so familiar to you that you no longer stand still by the details they're not any longer any important. They were important the first time that you had to drive that route, but that's not the case any longer. You now know how to get to your destination, and you have gotten used to the route. And that's what we're like. We easily get used to things, also to unpleasant things, even pain. For example, a widow or a widower gets used to being alone without his or her partner. Often, after a few years, the pain is not as great as it was. It's still there, of course, but he or she has found a way to fill the void. Time is a great healer. And that's also the case when you have a chronic health concern, you find ways around it and you learn to cope. We are able to get over a lot of things through the Lord who strengthens us. We also get used to things that we shouldn't get used to. We get used to bad language on TV, for example. We get used to our own sinful habits and our own sins and also the sins of others. We get used to just about anything. The problem is that this can also be the way it is with regard to the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're used to it. We hear it all the time. The details don't really register with us anymore. We have gotten used to the curse and the shame of the cross. And so, the cross loses its meaning. In this way, over the years, the cross has become a familiar symbol of the Christian religion. It is now widely portrayed. You see the cross everywhere as a grave marker, as a fine gold piece of jewelry ornament hanging from someone's neck, as a neatly varnished piece of wood on a wall, or as a decal on a car. The cross in this way has become an icon, an idol even, and we're used to it. But what does the cross really mean? What does it really stand for? That's what I want to preach you about this Good Friday morning. It is about the significance of the cross. And we will see that it signifies three things. First of all, it signifies suffering. Second place, death. And finally, atonement. The cross, first of all, signifies real, physical suffering. In reality, the cross is a hideous instrument in the hands of tormentors. It is one of the most brutal, one of the most cruel instruments of death ever conceived by the cruel minds of man. From all accounts, death by crucifixion was a very painful death. The spikes were driven through those parts of the hands and feet that were most sensitive. We are not sure of the exact details of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, but the following description will be very close to the mark. Three soldiers would have been needed to crucify him. On each side of him, a soldier held one of Jesus' hands, secure and flat against the cross beam. The third soldier held two square-cut iron nails in one hand and a heavy iron mallet in the other. He kneeled before each hand of the Lord Jesus. With his fingers, he probed our Lord's wrist to find the soft hollow just beneath the thumb bone. I read somewhere that this is the place where the medium nerve passes through the wrist and up to the forearm all the way to the spinal cord. When this nerve is pierced, it sends unimaginable pain shooting up the entire arm and through the shoulder. The soldier pierced it. The soldier then moved to the other side and pierced his other hand. With Jesus secure, they moved to his feet. The soldiers bent Jesus' knees at a 45-degree angle so that they could place his feet flat against the vertical beam. Then he nailed to feet, one at a time, side by side. At that point, the cross was hoisted into place, elevated and dropped into the bree dug hole. Jesus' beaten and nailed body was dropped two or three feet as the cross was jarred into place. As he hung on the cross, the weight of his body will have caused him to slowly suffocate as his lungs filled with air, but he would have been unable to exhale. The only way he could even exhale enough to speak was to lift himself up with the full weight of his body on his nailed feet. He would have to painfully lift himself up by pressing downward on the nails in his feet to exhale enough to say the words on the cross, such as the one we read in Matthew Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he hung on the cross, the Lord Jesus was suspended between heaven and earth, signifying that both man and God have forsaken him. Heaven didn't want him. Earth didn't want him. He was totally forsaken. The physical agony for the Lord Jesus was enormous. As I said, the cross was a crude instrument of torture, and we may not minimize the pain that he suffered. We may not in any way take for granted the great physical pain that he suffered on the cross. We have to remember the horror of it. But, brothers and sisters, That was not the real suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was something much worse. And there was something that he had to bear that we cannot even begin to imagine. His real suffering was not the cross as such, but it was the curse. It was the curse of God that was visited upon him. Do you know what that curse entails? God's curse comes upon you when he leaves you to wallow in your sin, when he allows you to remain in your sin so that that sin will totally destroy you. The curse of God is not just punishment, for punishment is different from curse. You receive punishment in order to set things right. Punishment is designed to teach you a lesson or to teach others a lesson. A child, for example, receives punishment when he gives his parents a big mouth. His parents could ground him or her, for example, or take away certain privileges. That's punishment. You You also receive punishment when you get drunkenly behind the wheel of a car and you kill someone. You could be heavily fined and have your license taken away, and probably you would also be thrown in jail. In our Western world, corporal punishment is frowned upon. But we know that all kinds of cruel punishments are meted out by less so-called civilized societies. In the Muslim country, if you steal a loaf of bread, they might cut off your hand. These are all punishments. But curse a curse you receive when your sin actually destroys you. When the penalty for your sin brings no reprieve, no closure. When no matter what you do or what is done to you doesn't matter. To be cursed means to stand condemned forever, to be totally destroyed by your misdeed. It means that whatever evil you chose to do is now your choice forever. No escape. And that is what Paul speaks about here in Galatians 3. He says that those who rely on observing the law are under a curse. In other words, he is referring to those who think that they, and by keeping the law, can earn their own salvation. To those who think that by their obedience they can approach God and say, My works are good enough to be acceptable in your sight, O God. My works have placed me in a position where I can claim the right to be accepted by you as an innocent, as an innocent person. My works earn my salvation. Well, says Paul, a person who thinks that a person who says that is under a curse. For, says God, if that is what you think, then he will condemn you to a life of keeping his law to perfection. And that's something you can't do. You're going to perish trying. You will come to a terrible end. Let me try to illustrate this. Suppose some billionaire developer gives you a million dollars to build you a house uh, to build to build him a house that million dollars that's just your wages and then he gives you all the equipment and all the material necessary in order to make this happen he also gives you the land on which to build but now instead of getting busy building that house you gamble the money away Because of your gambling debts, you also sell all the material that he has supplied you with. And you even sell the property. And then this billionaire developer comes along and he says to you, where is my house that you were going to build me? How come you haven't built it? I gave you everything necessary for it. Where is all the material? What happened to my property? And then you tell him, well, I don't have it anymore. I've gambled everything away. I can't do it anymore. But now that billionaire says to you, well, that's now your problem. You are still obliged to build me that house and I will hound you until you do. And I'm going to put a guard in place to make sure that you work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are not allowed to refresh yourself or to eat or sleep until you have done what you are supposed to have done in the first place. What do you think is going to happen to that wicked person? Do you think he'll survive? Do you think he can do it? Of course not. He's going to perish. He's going to die. You see, brothers and sisters, that is what the curse is all about. And that is the curse of God upon mankind. He says, I gave you everything necessary in order to keep my law. You have squandered it. Now you have my curse. Now you have to still do it. A curse is not just a punishment. It is to stand totally condemned and being unable to do anything about it yourself. And now the cross points us to the curse. For that is what the catechism means when it says that the crucifixion of Christ assures us that he took upon himself the curse which lay on us. He was the only one who could keep the law of God, both actively and passively. That's theological language. Let me make it plain and simple. The act of obedience of Christ was that he alone could keep the law of God perfectly. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a person on earth who is able to do that. And he was able to do that in the midst of a sinful people. He was able to do that all the time without fail. As the catechism says, he suffered all the time while he lived on earth. He suffered hellish agony. That's also what the descent into hell refers to. It's not that he actually went to hell, to a place called hell. No, it refers to the unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross. Christ went to hell while he was still on earth. And in the midst of it all, he remained obedient. He didn't curse God. He didn't curse his fellow man. He remained full of love for his Father in heaven and for mankind, for you and for me, for all those who trust in him. That was his active obedience. That, brothers and sisters, is what sets the Christian faith apart from all other religions. A Christian expresses love in the midst of suffering. He expresses love also in the midst of a people who hurt him and who treat him wrongly. He expresses love, especially to those of the household of faith. And a Christian can do that only because of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love that he showed on the cross. It is only because of the love that he showed on the cross that he is able to bear the injustices and hardships and all kinds of suffering that he might have to endure here on this present earth. And Christ was also passively obedient. What does that mean? Well, brothers and sisters, that is the greatest miracle of all of the true faith of the Christian faith. Christ was able to keep the law for himself perfectly. And because he was able, the keeping of the law was not a curse for him as such, for he could do it. And yet he took the curse that we deserve upon himself. He allowed himself to stand condemned before God. He allowed the punishment, what we deserve, to be visited upon him. And that is the great miracle of the Christian religion and that is the wonderful gospel of salvation. How full of meaning the cross is. He bore the curse of God throughout his whole life and especially on the cross. Do you know what that means? That means that because the curse has been taken away that you and I, we are now no longer condemned to have to live a perfect life. We are no longer required to do the impossible, for we can't. If we had to do it, we would perish. Now the Lord Jesus has done that for us. He has kept every single law. Through faith, we may now share in his obedience. He took our curse upon himself. So that we can be free, so that we can be free to serve God and our fellow man, so that we can enjoy God's wonderful gifts. But why then did He still have to die? For the curse of God was visited upon Him while He was hanging on the cross, wasn't it? Wasn't that enough? Well, He also had to die because that was part of the curse. Death is the result of our inability to keep God's law. Our flesh is sinful. Our flesh makes us sin all the time. And that sin had to be nailed on the cross with him. Lord's Day 16 speaks about the fact that the justice and truth of God demands it. For that is the only way that God would be satisfied. He said, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That was part of the curse visited upon man when he sinned. Question 41 asks why he was buried. The answer is to prove that he really died. Actually, it was the spear that was put into the side of the Lord Jesus and the water and the blood that came out that proved in the first place that he had died. It is important that we confess the actual and real death of our Lord Jesus. For if he hadn't died, then the matter of the payment for our sins would have remained incomplete we would then still have remained deep in debt to God because of our sins. But there is more to be learned from the burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. Death and burial are the ultimate consequences of sin. Brothers and sisters, I do not have to tell you, especially those who have buried loved ones, death is a very hard thing to deal with. It's very painful. And those who have experienced it of a loved one recently, they know how painful it is. It separates us from one another. It breaks the fellowship with those whom we love. And it is so painful to see the body of a loved one going down into the grave. It is a painful thing to see those whom we love rendered absolutely helpless and lifeless. Whereas before they walked and talked and communicated, now they can't anymore. The body has to be picked up and carried to the grave. But now remember the same thing happened to the body of Christ. They took him down from the cross. They carried him to the grave. He could no longer walk. He could no longer communicate. He was rendered totally lifeless, helpless. And he was placed in a grave where his body began to decompose. But now remember what happened. Christ didn't remain in the grave. On the third day, as we will remember in a few days, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He was given a perfect body, which would never again have to suffer the ravages of sin. He was given a body which would never again know illness or disease or death. That is why Christ came to earth. That is the meaning of the cross. That is why we celebrate Christmas and Good Friday and Easter. We celebrate his incarnation because of him taking on our human nature as he did at his birth. Our sinful nature could be redeemed. He was born in the flesh so that he, the Son of God, could experience death on our behalf. Isn't that wonderful? We have life because of him. Answer 37 speaks about Christ's atoning sacrifice. In the Latin edition of the Heidelberg Catechism it speaks about the expiatory sacrifice and also the word propitiating sacrifice could be used. I know these are big words. Let me explain because they are important. Each one has different meanings. They are all very rich adjectives to describe what the sacrifice of Christ was really about. And these different adjectives and nouns emphasize the different aspects of the one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on the cross. These words all go back already to the cover of the ark in the holy of holies in the temple of God. Once a year, the high priest would go into the temple and he would sprinkle sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial animal on the cover of that ark, which contained, among other things, the ten words, the two tables of the law. And that blood symbolized the penalty and the curse on the sin of the people because they didn't keep the law. But why did it have to happen? Because... God had to be placated. He had to be pacified. He had to be appeased. That is why the blood had to be sprinkled on that cover. What we had done wrong had to be made right again. And that's where the word propitiation comes in but he also had to be expiated. That refers especially to the penalty because of sin. The penalty for our sin had to be paid, and that could only be done through death. Sacrifice and the death of the animal pointed to the one and only sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mankind had to be reconciled to God because of his sin. And only the blood of Christ could do that. And that blood pointed to the one man, Jesus Christ. And that's how we come to the English word atonement. Atonement refers to setting at one. It comes all together in the one man, Jesus Christ. And The word atonement was coined in order to get an understanding of what the sacrifice of Christ was all about. The only sacrifice acceptable to God was the sacrifice that Christ made on, all, on our behalf. It all came together with him. The sacrifice that Christ made on the cross ensured that everything was well again between man and God. And so you see the great and wonderful meaning of the cross. When you think of the cross, you have to think of those things, those beautiful things. Think about what it means for you. Answer 43 gives us the wonderful benefits of the cross. Speaks there about the death of our old nature and the resultant life of thankfulness. Your old nature has been put to death and buried with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, does that mean that we no longer sin? Of course not. Does that mean that you're perfect all the time? No, we still sin all the time. But listen to what it says here. It says that our old nature has been put to death. And here it comes in Christ. That is the wonderful gospel of salvation, brothers and sisters. For that means that even though we do sin all the time, we may receive the forgiveness of sins, time and again, because of what happened on the cross. The curse of having to be perfect in our conduct, even though we are totally incapable, has been removed from us. We can be at peace. We can be at peace with God. All is well with my soul. And then the second thing that we may now offer ourselves, we may now offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. Thanksgiving. Brothers and sisters, do we ever have something to be thankful for? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ points to a reconciliation with the Father in heaven. He forgives us our sins and gives us eternal life. Be thankful. Live thankful lives. Be truly thankful for the cross and all that it stands for. Amen.